Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, head of thought leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on March 1st, 2022. Our podcast will start today with a timely discussion with Ann Walsh, Guggenheim's Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income and one of the most experienced bond managers in the industry. As markets grapple with the unfolding war in Ukraine, the shift towards more restrictive monetary policy and increasing market volatility, Anne shared with us her thoughts on these market dynamics, the advantages of active portfolio management in times like these, the process by which she and her team execute their strategy, and where she is looking for value. She also shares what she thinks about every day. As of December 31st, Anne, along with global CIO Scott Minard and the rest of the investment team, is responsible for $234 billion in fixed income assets in institutional accounts, insurance company portfolios, mutual funds, and other products. Also joining us is Paul Dozier, a director in our macroeconomic and investment research group, who will do a deeper dive into developments in Ukraine and recent economic data. Finally, Jenny Marler, Senior Managing Director and Head of Guggenheim Investments Real Estate Group, will give us an update on the retail sector. Let's begin with our conversation with Ann Walsh. Welcome, Ann, and thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you very much, Jay. So, Ann, with, uh, with all eyes on Ukraine right now, what are your current thoughts on the, what you're seeing there, uh, in terms of you know, portfolio impact and more generally? The entire world is now fixated on Eastern Europe uh, and watching uh, the Ukrainians fight for their freedom and really fight for democracy around the globe. Uh, my thoughts and prayers go out to those who are suffering and fighting, and they're fighting for the best possible cause, and of course that is freedom. Um, you know, I'm going to focus my thoughts around the market impacts of this uh, David and Goliath uh, fight that is unfolding in front of us. Uh, and, uh, and quite clearly, David is the underdog. The Ukrainians are showing the world what resolve can, can do, and it can protect uh, you know, your uh, property and your democracy uh, and your very culture uh, from uh, the first invasion of this kind in literally 80 years uh, in Europe. Um, but, you know, the longer the hostilities persist, quite clearly the greater the impact will be on sentiment in the markets and, uh, and quite clearly energy and maybe even food prices, uh, which uh, will probably have its most significant impact uh, to Europe. Uh, relative to, say, the rest of the globe. Sanctions are going to be weighing on trade and financial flows, particularly the um, uh, new SWIFT limits uh, on the SWIFT system, payment system uh, for Russian uh, flows of capital. We've seen the collapse of the ruble. Um, and, uh, and, and so this is unfolding uh, in real time, and the situation is very dynamic. I may be on the fortunate side that from the developed economy, uh, the exports to Russia and the Ukraine are relatively small. 
Um, they account for less than 1% of the EU GDP. However, coming the other way, uh, the uh, movement, uh, particularly of natural gas and oil and, uh, and wheat and food products uh, and other commodities, uh, will be more harmful because Europe in, uh, imports so much from both Russia as well as the Ukraine. And as sanctions continue against Russia, particularly uh, air, air and uh, aircraft uh, flying uh, uh, routes, as well as the uh, ever-increasing span of limits uh, as they encroach into energy uh, will be the next real phase. Uh, that's going to have a significant dampening impact. Um, the impact to the U.S. is much smaller uh, relative to Europe. Um, very little uh, imports and, uh, and very little exports go in that direction. Uh, but the impact globally, particularly to oil prices and, and natural gas prices, will, of course, have a, an impact on the U.S., which had already seen the impact of uh, higher oil prices, and it's acting as a tax on the U.S. economy. Um, and so that's the, the place where we're going to see the biggest challenge for particularly the U.S. economy. Uh, this, however, is likely to have uh, reduced the Fed uh, activity uh, and likely has taken off the table a very significant rate hike uh, in March. So at least from that perspective, uh, the markets should recalibrate Fed activity as a result of the geopolitical events as they unfold in Eastern Europe. You know, this is the kind of environment in which it really pays to be an active manager as opposed to a passive one. So let's, do, let's begin by talking about you know, why active management is so powerful uh, in, in, in times like this? Well, quite clearly, um, when markets are the most dynamic, and particularly when markets go into times of seizure, uh, that is where active management really pays off. Um, and being a nimble active manager in fixed income is particularly important at these types of market intersection points. So when we talk about the different markets, maybe we should level set with regard to definitions. And that is that the passive equity market is um, made up of the largest issuers by market cap. So this means those with the largest access to capital and the largest size dominate the equity passive indices, whether it be the uh, S&P 500 or the NASDAQ. Uh, they're dominated by those companies that, that have the largest market cap. And this is really important because if you contrast that with the fixed income markets, the passive markets are designed to be based on the largest issuers of debt. In other words, the largest debtors. And so you get the market indices for fixed income dominated by the biggest borrowers. Currently, the market indices that dominates the market index that dominates uh, the passive fixed income world is, of course, the, the uh, Barclays Aggregate Index and the uh, and, and the passive indices that that mimic it. And so, what is that uh, all about? Well. 
just to give you some context, uh, the universe of the fixed the fixed income universe in the U.S. is huge, uh, and it's diverse. So there's about $52 trillion outstanding in U.S. fixed income securities. Uh, it also contains nearly 5 million individual different debt instruments, uh, or QSIPs if you prefer. Uh, and then there are a tremendous number of private debt instruments out there that do not have security identifiers uh, that are attributed to them. So you can see it's a very large universe. Interestingly enough, less than half of that actually appears in an index. Uh, and so as a result, it doesn't even capture the full market breadth of the fixed income universe in the U.S. The universe of listed stocks in the U.S., which is uh, a market cap of nearly a, the same size, $46 trillion, but it's only about 3,500 companies in the U.S., much easier to capture the entire market breadth of equities relative to fixed income. So ultimately, Ann, what is the real advantage of active management for fixed income? So as I've mentioned, when you're dealing with a fixed income universe, if you will, of the largest debtors, what you're really trying to do is avoid loss or, if you will, non-payment by those debtors. So risk mitigation is the real advantage of active fixed income management. Uh, and particularly the, the ability of active fixed income managers to uh, adjust their risk tolerance based on where they are in the market cycle uh, and to use uh, investments and to invest in those uh, fixed income instruments that are not contained in uh, the ag uh, or other fixed income indices. And as a result, it's a much broader investment universe from which fixed income managers can select when they're actively engaged in the market. So the, for bonds, then, it, you know, risk and return is asymmetric as opposed to stocks where there is a lot of upside if you make the right choice. Exactly. So in fixed income, uh, if everything goes according to plan, Let's just take the example of a single bond. If you buy a bond on the day it's issued and, you, and the bond matures sometime in the future, then basically what's happened is, is that your return is equivalent to the coupon that you've earned through that period of time. And the real uh, risk is that you have the bond uh, not be able to pay either through default or downgrade of rating. And so when we say that the risk is asymmetric, what we mean is, is, that, is that you don't have this huge upside return like you do in equities. The opportunity for a huge upside uh, is uh, pretty much non-existent in fixed income relative to equities. And so you have a really significant risk of downside without the benefit that you would get in, uh, in the equities market. And so an active fixed income manager needs to figure out where they can find relative value, how to collect the most investment income relative to the risk uh, that is being undertaken, and, and then to collect that investment income over the long run. And again, let's also make the note that, that fixed income investing can be upwards of you know, 10 plus, maybe 30 years into the future when you buy a 10 or 30 year uh, maturing bond. And so as a result, you're going to be continuing to manage this asset for quite some years to come. Unlike equities, 
which tend to have a much shorter view uh, and the opportunity to uh, to exit those uh, securities can be also much easier. So all of this enters into the concept of risk mitigation and protection against that downside risk of loss. Now, Anne, there, there are many different ways for an active manager to go about uh, you know, executing on this kind of strategy. What kind of process do you and Scott Miner uh, and, and Steve Brown oversee here at Guggenheim? So our fixed income investment management process is unique within the industry. We've built our process on the foundation of behavioral finance, which is that school of you know, financial management or investment uh, management that was developed and designed following the teachings of Danny Kahneman. And Dr. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he's a psychologist. And he did a lot of his work um, uh, on how investors perceive risk and then also how uh, uh, decision theory works to make investors become better investors and or uh, apply better uh, decision points in order to uh, make those decisions. And so the first part of his work, which is the definition of behavioral finance, is that investors embrace and value avoidance of loss more than they value excess return, or what we sometimes today call alpha. And so it really fits into fixed income management thinking to avoid loss. So it's very much aligned with behavioral finance. But the other aspect of Dr. Kahneman's work is that of how do investors make decisions. And maybe to sum it up, investors uh, really trade too much. They tend to become very reactive, and they build in investment thinking and biases into their decision-making. Dr. Kahneman suggested that there are two ways to think about uh, making investment decisions, and he titled them System 1 and System 2. And system one thinking is this very reactive, automatic, bias-driven investment uh, thinking, which causes investors to sub-optimize their portfolios, trade too often, and make really quite suboptimal investment management decisions. System two thinking, which is slow and effortful and thoughtful, is what we've built our investment management process around. Now, how does that work? Well, we have created teams that come together uh, to collectively engage in the entire asset management or investment management process. So we've disaggregated the portfolio management process into uh, teams, and they work collaboratively together to help make investment management decisions. It slows down the decision-making process but it then ends up resulting in uh, our teams working together to come up with the best investment management approaches. We do like to say that uh, our process is uh, predictable, repeatable, and scalable. And just to follow up on that, does that mean that uh, your investment process only makes decisions slowly? Or can you still act nimbly when conditions are warranted? You know, a lot of people, when they hear group uh, decision-making or collaborative or team-based thinking, they immediately think of the pejorative term groupthink, which would then mean that uh, decisions 
aren't happening at all or that people end up getting decision paralysis. That is by no means what's happening in our organization. Our teams are working very uh, fast uh, uh, and uh, reacting to market inputs all the time. Uh, But because we've broken our teams up into areas of specialization and uh, because our teams are made up of uh, committees, we then can have our decision-making happening in real time within our committees and our individual areas of specialization, all working together in order to meet fast-moving market um, inputs uh, in order to put uh, and assemble those those inputs into our portfolios. So it's not a slow process. It is, however, a much more thoughtful process. And in this environment, uh, what sectors do you think will offer the best value in a fixed income portfolio? Historically speaking, when the Fed has started rate hikes, and we can say that rate hikes really began when the Fed decided to slow their purchases of treasuries committing to end those here in the first half of 2022, which appears to be the trajectory that they are on. So during this window of time, what we might refer to more generally as um, a Fed monetary uh, quantitative tightening, during the times of quantitative tightening, the spread sectors, uh, uh, particularly in fixed income, do well. And so those are those fixed income investments that are not Uh, treasury securities, which we refer to as the rates market. And so that can include any number of credit sectors, uh, investment-grade corporates, um, structured credit, um, uh, bank loans, uh, and other credit uh, securities tend to do very well in in the early phases of the quantitative tightening cycle. And we anticipate that this is no different now, that those sectors will continue to perform well, uh, notwithstanding the fact that rates are starting to rise. And while uh, it can certainly be challenging in the rates market, we anticipate that as we go further through the tightening cycle, that rates really aren't expected, at least in our view, to rise very much more uh, in the long end. Uh, And so uh, for the 10-year Treasury, there's a there's a possibility that we go all the way to two and a quarter percent, but it's highly unlikely at this point in time. And obviously, because of geopolitical conflict and the flight to safety, we've actually seen a retreat of the 10-year down from uh, the two percent level that it has reached. So as a result, um, you know markets are of course reacting in real time, but Uh, They're also reacting to the less likely um, impact of Fed rate hikes as a result of geopolitical events now. So altogether, this is a good time to hold on to those sectors that can add value over rates uh, and benefit from higher investment income, which we've seen some spread widening. And so these particular assets uh, may be particularly uh, valuable at this particular juncture. So you are seeing some uh, some weakness in risk assets in this flight to quality? We are a little bit. Uh, as we've seen the volatility in equities, uh, the credit markets are uh, also expressing that same level of concern and volatility, although to a, to a much more dampened impact. 
Uh, and so uh, they're very orderly. Uh, so we're not seeing any kind of, um, uh, any kind of liquidity issues uh, or uh, any kind of um, market uh, dislocation or panic as a result of the geopolitical events that are unfolding. But uh, they are offering investors uh, additional yield at this particular time, which is a positive. Uh, again, as fixed income investors are holding uh, securities for a longer timeline uh, as a result of the, just the nature of fixed income instruments, uh, investors are able to get a little bit more yield right now. And of course, the most important part about fixed income is the income. And, uh, and this is a, a, a rather opportune time for investors. Uh, Anne, I have one last question for you, uh, which is particularly relevant uh, today when there's so much going on. But as CIO for fixed income, what is the most important thing that you do every day as you execute your responsibilities? Anytime you have the honor of investing people's savings through our mutual funds or through our institutional clients, um, you know, we really think of that as a sacred trust that we have as an asset management firm. And uh, I don't think enough is enough attention is paid to the concern that we have and, and the obligation we feel every single day to our clients uh, who have entrusted us with their savings and, uh, and expect us to uh, take very good care of, uh, of their funds. And, uh, and, and it's something that we spend a great deal of time on in our organization. We remind our team members routinely that this is a very important responsibility that we have. It's an important purpose to our daily business, uh, and, uh, and, and we take it very, very seriously. And I think that, you know, in terms of our everyday, that's always first and foremost in my mind, and it's uh, how I think every day about how to execute my job is on behalf of our clients and their clients. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time today. I know it's a particularly busy period uh, in the market, a lot going on. Uh, but please come back and visit with us again soon. Thank you, Jay. And thank you to everybody listening. Thanks, Anne. Now, one note for listeners. Earlier in our discussion, Anne referred to the Barclays Aggregate Index, and she was using an older name for what is now known as the Bloomberg Aggregate Bond Index, which is the widely used benchmark for the U.S. bond market. Now, next up, we have Paul Dozier, a director in our macroeconomic and investment research group, who is here to take a closer look at the situation in Ukraine and some recent economic data releases. Paul, take it away. Thanks, Jay. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine last week, all eyes have been on developments there. After months of mobilizing military equipment and personnel, early last Thursday, Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The scope of the invasion surpassed most expectations, including our own, amounting to one of the most significant geopolitical events since World War II. Russia's objectives with this invasion are apparently to destroy Ukraine's military, to prevent the country's eventual drift toward the West, and to install a pro-Russia government. It's unclear what the outcome of hostilities will be or how long they'll last, but Russia has a clear military advantage. Impact from the invasion were felt immediately, with risk sentiment deteriorating and risk assets selling off. 
Sentiment improved over the next couple of days when it became clear that sanctions imposed by the U.S., Europe, and other developed market countries would not restrict the flow of Russian energy exports. That said, the sanctions imposed are significant. U.S., European, and other developed market countries imposed restrictions on the Russian sovereign, banks, companies, and individuals that are affiliated with the Kremlin, the military, the energy sector, and entities that supported hostilities in Ukraine. The sanctions seek to freeze the assets of the government and Russia's 10 largest banks and those that belong to certain companies and individuals and to prevent them from raising funds or benefiting from other financial services. The measures impose travel bans for certain individuals, and they seek to put a stop to exports of components that are important for Russia's military and industry, including semiconductors and other tech-related goods. The Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Germany appears now to be suspended for the indefinite future. And perhaps most significantly, the Russian central bank now faces sanctions and the U.S. and other countries are moving to cut off certain Russian banks from the SWIFT interbank payments messaging system. Russia had amassed a significant war chest and was well situated to withstand the effects of the sanctions, at least for some time. Government debt amounts to just 20% of GDP, the country runs fiscal and current account surpluses, the sanctions don't touch revenues from energy exports, and foreign currency reserves are sufficient to cover 12 months of imports. But the sanctions will put a significant damper on the Russian economy, depressing activity, driving inflation higher, and hampering the central bank's ability to defend the Russian ruble, conduct overseas payments, and shore up Russian financial institutions with its foreign currency reserves. And although the world will continue to buy Russian energy exports, in the short run, it will be more difficult for the Russian economy to put those revenues to work. And in the longer run, Europe and other places around the world will seek to diversify from Russian energy supplies. Outside of Russia, we see the conflict and its second round effects impacting the global economy via a couple major channels. Ongoing hostilities will dampen risk sentiment, tightening financial conditions and weighing on investment, and to a lesser extent consumption. The longer the fighting lasts, the more it will weigh on sentiment and the likelihood of trade disruptions increases. On that note, supply issues due to damage, disrupted operations, or possible countersanctions could hamper imports of natural gas, oil, and food commodities, which could weigh on production and push inflation higher, especially in Europe. As such, ECB and Bank of England policy normalization will likely proceed cautiously. Other central banks, including the Fed, will likely look through supply issues, but a 50 basis point rate hike next month looks less likely now. In data-related developments last week, the second estimate for fourth quarter GDP came in just a bit stronger than the initial estimate, at 7% annualized. The broad contours of the print remained the same, with consumption and especially inventory investment contributing the lion's share of growth. However, we, see, we expect to see a market slowdown during this quarter due to the effects of the Omicron wave and as businesses adjust down inventory investment. We got preliminary PMI data for February, which showed improvements in both manufacturing and services sectors, but particularly the latter as mobility improved and restrictions were lifted in the wake of Omicron. We also got conference board and University of Michigan sentiment surveys, which were somewhat contradictory, likely reflective of the cross currents between post-Omicron pickup in services activity and the deterioration in views regarding inflation, affordability, and even jobs. And finally, personal spending for January jumped by 2.1%, 
again, likely due to the reopening activity in the wake of Omicron. And that's all I've got. Back to you, Jay. Thanks, Paul Dozier. Next up, we have the head of Guggenheim Real Estate, Jenny Marler, who is going to bring us an update on the retail sector in the real estate market. Jenny, the microphone is yours. Thanks, Jay. As we look forward into 2022 and look back on uh, yet another closing holiday retail shopping season, wanted to offer a bit of an update on uh, the retail sector in real estate uh, and coming off a very strong 2021 holiday shopping season where retail sales increased by almost 17% year over year. Core retail and food service sales, which excludes gas and auto, rose by almost 16%. E-commerce only sales increased by almost 10.5% year over year. By category, clothing and accessories had the strongest annual sales growth of all retail sectors at almost 50%, followed by gas station sales at 37%. The plateauing of e-commerce's portion of overall, re- overall retail sales in 2021 suggests a renewed balance between online and brick-and-mortar sales as consumers look to both. Foot traffic at leading discount stores during the first, fourth quarter of 2021 was up between 3 and 8% from 2019 levels during Black Friday weekend. Indoor malls were only 5% below their 2019 levels for foot traffic. As a result of the pandemic, e-commerce will retain a permanently larger share of overall retail sales, but that line between brick and mortar and pure online retail will continue to blur as consumers continue to look for increased flexibility. The overall retail availability rate fell by 30 basis points in the fourth quarter to a 10-year low of 5.6%. That's a decrease of a point from a year ago. By category, lifestyle and mall availability increased by 40 bips in the fourth quarter and 50 bips for the year overall at almost 7%, with power centers matching a four-year low of availability at 6.4%. Retail vacancies continue to fall from previous quarters, reaching 6.5%. Lowest vacancy rates by market were Miami, Nashville, Raleigh, Durham, Columbus, and Boston. Net absorption for retail totaled to over 20 million square feet in the fourth quarter. That marks the fifth consecutive quarter of positive demand. In 2021, net absorption totaled nearly 100 million square feet, and that's the highest annual total since 2016. Markets that saw the largest volume of positive absorption were Houston, Dallas-Fort Worth, Phoenix, and New York City Metro. New supply of retail in the fourth quarter fell almost 60% year over year to just 4.5 million square feet, that contributes to the lowest annual level of retail supply in nearly a decade. Rising construction materials costs are expected to further constrain new construction projects in the coming quarters. That lack of prime new space has certainly boosted occupancy levels and has supported increased rent. Average asking rent for retail increased by 1.6% year over year. In terms of shopping center type, strip center retail grew 3.5% annually, followed by neighborhood centers at 33 and power centers at 2.9%. Rent growth has actually eclipsed the long-term average for two consecutive quarters and shows no sign of slowing due to the lack of new supply. Focusing on 2022 and what we see going forward for the retail subsector, in 2021, major retailers had announced about 5,000 store openings and about 5,000 store closures, so pretty much a wash. Uh, Retail openings for 2022 are actually expected to outnumber planned retail closures, Um, Store opening announcements for this year are very heavily skewed so far towards the dollar store, discount, off-price, and warehouse club spaces. Uh, Combined, those sectors accounted for about 47% of all the new opening announcements last year. 
A Dollar General actually led in new openings and gross square feet with anticipated 11.7 million square feet of new space, followed by Burlington stores and Costco. Amazon has also announced plans to open 13 stores this year. That's a 12% expansion of its existing stock of 107 stores. CVS announced plans to close 900 retail store locations over the next three years, actually 9% of its current footprint, but at the same time, they are doubling down on new initiatives to open retail locations that offer primary care services. Discount grocer Aldi had announced plans to open about 150 new stores in 2022. Uh, it's also announcing plans to increase availability of curbside pickup to meet um, new consumer habits following the pandemic. Shopping centers have experienced a very strong recovery uh, propelled by increased foot traffic as people have gotten, gotten back to business and uh, the economy has opened back up. Uh, retailers have also started expanding and using their existing stores as distribution and fulfillment hubs. It's a strategy that allows more consumer flexibility, but is also serving to drive additional foot space into those shopping centers. Uh, grocery anchored retail drew about $5 billion in investment activity just in the last quarter. That's the second most active quarter in 10 years. In the third quarter of 2021, the grocery anchored retail sector registered a 61% increase in activity compared with the average level seen between 2015 and 2019. With grocery anchored e-commerce expected to grow more than 20% in 2022 and double by 2025, grocery anchored centers are expected to remain the gold standard of retail investment and all those favorable supply and dyna demand dynamics that we've discussed uh, will certainly help that as well. So despite all the headwinds of the pandemic, the retail sector is managing to hold quite steady. Um, retail has always been about location, 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 this lack of new supply uh, and, and, and continued demand for retail space has certainly helped to keep prices and rents steady to positive. So that's all I have, Jay. My thanks once again to Ann Walsh, Paul Dozier, and Jenny Marler. And thanks to all of you who joined us for our podcast. I'm Jay Diamond. And we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership and videos, including the CIO Outlook by Scott Minard, our global CIO, visit GuggenheimInvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product, or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions, and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. And herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. 
there is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results.